Want to hear more? Follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, or check out slutsandscholars.com. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Simone. And I'm Nicoletta. And this week we are joined by Peter Tupper, whose writing has appeared in Wired Magazine, the Canadian Medical Association Journal, The Globe, and Mail. Uh, he's co-founder of Metro Vancouver Kink, uh, which is a nonprofit BDSM community organized in Vancouver, British Columbia, and remains active in the BDSM scene. He has researched and blogged about the history of consensual sadomasochism since 2005 and has presented at the Art of Loving in Vancouver, the Center for Sex Positive uh, Culture in Seattle, Washington, and in 2012, 2013, and 2016 at the Master Slave Conferences. He edited and contributed to Our Lives, Our Histories, Consensual Master-Slave Relationships from Ancient Times to the 21st Century, which won the 2017 Jeff Maines Nonfiction Book Award from the National Leather Association. His new book, A Lover's Pinch, tells the story of a consensual sadomasochism from a controversial religious practice to a secretive sexuality branded a perversion. Uh, the origins of kink and fetish culture have been shrouded in secrecy and myths until now. So here in this book, Peter Tupper reveals the story of sadism, masochism, dominance, and submission. Welcome. Welcome. Good to hear from you. Nice yeah. to hear from you. So you are a very special treat for our listeners because we had a uh, very kinky episode recently called Daddy and Baby Girls Pain is for Pleasure. And our listeners just want to know more about this stuff. And we're scholars and you're a scholar. So we're so excited to have you talk to us about the history of kink and BDSM uh, from a very particular perspective. Something that I love that you did in your book was um, go over some definitions around kink and BDSM. And I would love for each of us to maybe go around and say how we define what kink means to us. Because um, I yeah. feel like we're going to be throwing that term around a lot and it's such a broad definition. Okay, so Peter, how do you define kink? Well, starting with the professional. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, I spent a good chunk of the introduction sort of dealing with that exactly. And... Um, I, I, I unfortunately I've kind of fell a little back on the old Potter Justice Potter Stewart definition of I know what when I see it. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. I sort of took the idea that it was involving. I, I sort of hit on the definition that it's a a form of sexual interaction that involves ritual, uh, even if the people involved don't think of it as such, and it involves uh, it usually but not necessarily involves dominance and submission and or uh, intense physical experiences. Yeah, I like that. I like the intense physical experiences component. Yeah. Now, that doesn't necessarily include things where in which, like, what could be called fetishism, which is where people have a sexual response to a certain act or object that doesn't necessarily, or type of person, that does, isn't usually considered sexual. So again, it's a bit. I'll admit it's a bit loosey goosey, but um, like I said, I know it when I see it. Yeah. What about you, Simone? Well, it's hard to define, and I think what I really enjoyed in your introduction was how you talk about the way we define when we define kink as everything that's not vanilla, which is a tautology, yeah. and I, 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 I too feel kind of wrapped up in this confusion as to how how to define it because I definitely think because yeah, people say like, what are your kinks? Meaning, like, what are the things that you're into or right. that you like? What are the things that you're into? What are the things that you like? And then, and I'm also at a loss as someone who is not super um, educated or informed on all of the different varieties of BDSM and various kinky play. Yeah, not as much as you are. Not as much as you are, <laughs> professor. I don't know if you're a professor, but I, I But like she wants to call it. But she wants to call you professor. <laughs> so I'll just call you professor. Well, if you're into that. I, I, I am. As long as you're consenting to be called professor, then uh, let's do it. <laughs> um, and so I lost my train of thought because I'm thinking about Thinking about professors. <laughs> well, I'll, then I'll ask the next question. Well, you didn't define kink. Sure. Oh. Well, no, I said I feel like I, I said what you were saying, that I feel like it's something that is just consensual and not quote-unquote vanilla. Like people will say, what are your kinks? But we're talking about aspects of it as opposed to defining it for what it is. Oh, and that's that was my train of thought, is that you brought up ritual, professor. Yes. And 
I do, I, I fully recognize that as someone who uh, is definitely in, interested in and intrigued by and fascinated with BDSM and kink, I know how little of the ritual and protocol I actually know. And part of what is so interesting to me is these like very specific rituals of um, the play itself, but also negotiation and how consent is achieved and all of these sorts of things. So I think it's pretty cool how you define it. Yeah, it's like um, I, I work off the sort of the Victor Turner's theory of, of ritual space of, of I don't know if I'm familiar with what that is. Well, there's an anthropologist called Victor Turner who uh, formulated this theory of, of ritual. And it's the idea that um, we create these little spaces and times where the normal rules of society do not apply. Mm -hmm. And we step into them for, in effect, to transform ourselves, mm -hmm. to kind of adopt new roles uh, temporarily or even permanently. And in that space, we feel different. We, we, things that are not socially acceptable become socially acceptable. Um, and then we, you know, experience the pleasures and the intimacies of being in that space with another person. And then we sort of step back into our everyday life. So, you know, you go into the, you go into the, you, you negotiate with your partner in the scene and, you know, you go into this space where, you know, wearing full body rubber is, is acceptable or calling somebody a slave is acceptable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that gives us a, a pleasure in this, even if it's just like two people in one room for a few hours. And then we sort of like ease our, when that's done, we ease ourselves back into our regular identities, our regular lives. Mm -hmm. And hearing you talk about it like this makes it seem, you know, totally benign or normative almost. It's about mm -hmm. getting pleasure, which is like a very typical human goal or endeavor. Um, yeah. And yet, as you said, this has been, BDSM in particular, has been branded a perversion and kind of yes. throughout all time. Um, I, rem I remember reading in, your, in, in the book about how there were artifacts related to sex and kink found in the ruins of Pompeii. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Pompeii? In French, say Pompeii, I so I don't know how to say it in English. Yeah, Pompeii. And, and they were destroyed. Yeah, and so I'm curious if you could yeah. give us an overview of this branding of kink as a perversion, or is the perversion necessary for the kink? Like, because that's what makes it exciting? Well, I think that the there is the idea of the transgression is certainly a big ingredient in the overall pleasure. The idea is, is that we are doing something special that is not every day. Um, but I also think is that um, you know we have different like so much of what um, when when people were when the people were first digging up Pompeii in the eighteenth uh, and nineteenth centuries, they were. Um, finding all these artifacts of like winged phalluses and, you know, vaginal sculptures and things like that. Yes. And if you go visit there, I've seen, you can see like the murals on the wall that used to be in the brothels. Yeah. And they didn't really, the, the, the scholars who were discovering this didn't really know what to make of this. And they were, some of them are so uncomfortable with them that they, they were destroyed on the spot. Or, you know, sort of stored away in like little private cabinets in like, uh, you know, the major universities of Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, and what they, what they eventually realized is that, they, I mean, for a while they thought that like one in four houses in Pompeii must have been a brothel because there was so much sexual art around. Mm. And what they later realized is that Romans just, for them, that kind of imagery was just something that they found just normal. reassuring just a sign of fertility and health and vitality mm -hmm. it wasn't a it wasn't their their definition of sexual was very very different from ours so you know they would have no idea no problems with the idea of like a, a you know a nude sculpture you know there was it was just they they made those were separate categories in their mind I do wonder, and, like, if I would be less interested in kink stuff or if everyone would be less interested in kink stuff if it was so normalized. Like, I do feel like it's becoming more and more in the mainstream now, but I think part of what has interested me in some of that is the taboo nature of really? a lot of stuff. Definitely. See, I, yeah, I think... 
I don't know. I don't know if that resonates with me because I think about, well, for example, Levi and Sid, who we had on the podcast, who was, they're a 24-7 dynamic. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that if you're in a 24-7 dynamic where it's literally your norm, you, it's less arousing. It's, it's le- but it's also that you, in that case, you've got like your secret. You've got your little, your, your little secret from the world. Right. That you're just, you may look like you're just going out and doing something perfectly mundane, like you shopping at the supermarket. In. Right. Like I'm not saying the but norm in somebody's life. I'm saying the norm in the in world society. in general. So like if, if we yeah. did work to make it less stigmatized and more shame-free and more globalized, would it be as exciting or would it be like, oh, this is just like penis and vagina sex, like, eh, whatever? I, I think there is a certain, there is a little bit of a hint to that. I think that, that the scene as a whole functions kind of as an initiation ritual. The idea that you're, you're in this sort of special world, that you're initiated into this um, particular subculture that makes you different from other people and that you... Um, you know, you, you like people, I don't know if people use scene names anymore, but some of them do. And, you know, you dress a certain way and you learn, you learn new skills and you learn new jargon. And, uh, so it is that, that is, you know, that is, there is a threshold to cross over and that is part of its appeal, I think. And it is, so, you know, you look at things like 50 shades and, um, you know, it is vastly more open and, and, you know, you can buy, books on kink at, you know, major bookstores. You've got the whole Fifty Shades phenomenon and things like that. And I think that does... The BDSM is for Barnes & Noble. Yeah. (laughs) Nowadays. I don't know if people... I don't know if people ask you this, but I get this question a lot um, if sex becomes less exciting to me because it's something that I do for work and I study. And so I wonder, like, if in all your years of research, has that just reinvigorated your... um, your interest in BDSM or has it made it, I don't want to say boring, but like, do you feel like it, you approach it differently now that you've done all this study around it? Um, I do feel differently at that. I, I've, I guess it's, it, there's a difference between like sort of being involved in the kink culture as a mm-hmm. whole and being involved in like my personal play. Um, I do think it involves, you know, my research has, affected my personal play a bit and it's made me you know think about what i'm doing and and uh i don't think it's changed that much i think it's i am curious though how it has informed your personal play if you're comfortable with sharing i have a lot i'm interested in the kink scene as a whole even in things that i even things that i have no interest in participating in myself Mm -hmm. i can look upon with as sort of as with a like a historian or anthropologist's eye and and sort of like try to understand them and try to see you know why people do this and how do they talk about themselves and um so i like even if there's you know even if there's a kind of play i don't want to be involved in myself it's interesting to look at and know about the people and the book that you've made here is it more for like the lay person or for people who are already like in the kink scene like who do you hope will read your book well, I'm I'm after this sort of awkward niche that's like the intersection of two other niches, which is his, people interested in history and people interested in SM. And I'm <laughs> hoping it'll it'll branch out into those those two uh, those two circles in the Venn diagram and and I get and get readers from both. Um, I don't think you I feel need like to Renaissance necess- fairs are a good place to advertise. Maybe. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's, uh, you don't need to know a huge amount about SM to, uh, understand the book and learn, and learn about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you need, uh, it's, it's not, I, I was con- quite conscious of that and that there would be people who don't necessarily know anything about that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, sort of, because a lot of the chapters begin with like a little vignette from my personal experience. Um, and, uh, sort of try to like, for people, even for people who've never been involved in kink at all, who are coming at it sort of as as people interested in history, or as act, or as students or academics, that they can, um, you know, they can have a step in and get my personal perspective because I think that my personal perspective does add to my my historical research. So, based on your historical research, I think this is a figure that a lot of us think about when we think of the S in BDSM, right, which is the Marquis de Sade. 
And so yep. you kind of touch upon who he is as a historical figure, um, but also those who he had an influence on who are maybe even more important. And so I would be yeah. curious if you could kind of delve into that historical, uh, historic part. Well, yeah, because you see, like, Saad himself was um, a, a, a very a very peculiar man. Um, there you say fucked up? Was, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not going to dispute that. Um, he's, yeah, he was kind of uh, a very, dis- uh, yeah, disturbed. But um, I actually, I was like, in a, I was in a history class in a, in high school, and we had yeah. they put together these salons, um, and we got assigned different characters, and I was already interested in like the sex therapy realm in high school. So my AP Euro teacher assigned me um, to do a video on Marquis de Sade, and I like oh. did like a new age like rendition of him, and I had a friend in like a latex vest and a collar, and he was like holding my little dog at the time and petting it. And like doing this weird like interview as like a current Marquis de Sade, and then I think the opening <laughs> credits were him like playing Dance Dance Revolution or something ridiculous. And I like ever since then I've been super interested in Marquis de Sade. But so yeah. he was like a a non consensual kinkster, right? Oh yeah. Like was, what did he do yeah. exactly? Like why do we? Why have we given his name to the definition of sadism? Uh, because he was, well, first of all, because he was very well studied, because his, his activities were, were closely monitored by police agents. So we have detailed studies of his uh, activities, like his attempted rapes of, of at least a couple of women. Um, and secondly, because he was a prolific writer, and he wrote books like uh, Justine and uh, Juliet, or Philosophy in the Bedroom, and uh, the hundred day, hundred twenty days of Sodom, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And these books were very, were you know, even in his own life, he was pretty notorious for his writings, many of which were done in prison. Um, and uh, he became, you know, he's sort of like, um, I think that there was there was sort of the myth of the Sod that was well and well much larger than the man himself, even though the man himself was allegedly the fattest man in France. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, but it's like he he built up he he became the sort of legendary figure among the avant garde. He died in I believe eighteen ten, and um, but what was the fucked up shit the, he did? He he like he would like um, um you know he he you know coerced women and uh, into his bedroom and like tried to um, you know tried to um, I, this this could get a little rough, but uh, he was like trying to. Uh, he beat them. He tried to feed them um, alleged aphrodisiacs. Uh, he would try to um, he uh, you know forced them into these sort of like perversions of of Catholic rituals, like ejaculating into a chalice and things like that. And he was this. Um, he had these very meticulous sort of almost like dramatic schemes mm-hmm. uh, worked up, and he wanted to basically coerce women into doing them Whoa. with him. If only he had known. If you uh, ask nicely, you can find someone who's down to do it. Probably, maybe not at the time. Uh, yeah, it's. It's. I, it, it's, I think there probably were women who would have been, you know, experienced in providing flagellation and things like that. I think he wanted to, that to overcome the resistance. You know, it's mm. it, to him that there was no resistance. There wasn't. It was that was part of the, you know, the part of it. They wanted them to. He wanted the women to plead, please don't, you know, I, I haven't taken confession yet and, and don't do this to me. I, and, you know, he said, he'd say, you can confess to me and I will take it. And, you know, what difference does it make? I'm as good as any priest and so forth. That's a wondering you know, I have was, of like sadism in general, because there are people that I know in the kink community who would describe themselves as sadists. And I do wonder if we can ever really be true sadists if we are engaging in consensual play. So much of what I'm trying to do is write about consensual SM. Right. And Saad is just, just has like one toe in that realm since so much of what he does wasn't consensual. Mm-hmm. But it's like he's, 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 his legend and his writings were so important in that. Because like in the 19th century, after he died, in the decades after he died, uh, you know, the name sadism became, you know, the word for cruelty for, uh, um, 
And, you know, all these sort of uh, French and English uh, decadent authors, you know, sort of worshipped him, not figuratively speaking, as this, as the ultimate rebel against the establishment, the ultimate bohemian, radical, transgressive adventurer. Mm-hmm. Um, even though most of them probably had never actually read anything Saad had ever written, because it was really hard to get uh, what you know any of his books pub- uh, in print, you know, and uh, Swinburne, uh, the English poet Swinburne, um, was so disappointed that when he actually got hold of a, could actually read one of Saad's books that he wrote an open letter to the deceased Marquis and said something like, you know, a a six-year-old girl could write a scarier story than you. Seriously, dude. You're a... Seriously, dude. (laughs) I am so disappointed in what... I was expecting, you know, horrors, and it's like, you know, I could get... This is rubbish. I mean, even though he's a a big name um, in the history books, there was a lot of... BDSM-like play happening way before him, and without giving yeah. away your whole book, um, what what is the first historical evidence that we see of kink-like play, whether that be consensual or non-consensual? Okay, that's that's a really difficult question because um, so much of what we see in so much of what the historical record on flagellation would be non-consensual is. or like religious yes. stuff. Yeah, and you see, that's what's interesting because so much of what we know about even voluntary flagellation was that it was in this religious context. Mm-hmm. And the people, but the people, you see, the people who were opposed to the idea that reli- that flagellation should be used in religious con- as a religious right, they were the ones asserting that flagellation should, be, you know, was a a physical indulgence a perversion they were the ones saying that this was this was um you know should not be allowed because it was sexual or at least not allowed in a religion oh like this is not a religious form of punishment this is like a a fun sex thing that people do yeah a physical indulgence a a perversion of of of, uh, a bodily perversion and uh that was and there's arguments going back and forth all over you know, all through the the Middle Ages about, um, you know, about how the, you know, from the beginnings of Christianity about whether flagellation uh, should be taken as a religious ritual or whether it was a perversion. And, um, and people were arguing this back and forth and, and, you know, heretics were accused of, of, of flagellant, uh, you know, perversions and other, and using, uh, you know, engaging in mortification of the flesh, like wearing stilluses and hair shirts and things like that, that they were uh, indulging in the flesh rather than being pious. What were hair and shirts? It's only about, what, what are hair shirts? I like remember what is like a, what is it? It's like a, a shirt wore, woven out of extremely coarse fiber that people would wear next to their skin and for deliberately for the discomfort. Uh, as a as a sort of a sign of their religious devotion, as yeah. a sense of like, I would wear this while doing scholarly work. Uh, others would wear uh, silices. Yeah, silices. You know what silices? It's like a metal. It's a metal ring that you like wear on your thigh that has spikes on the inside, and you like tighten yeah. it. It's what the it's what the albino wears in the Da Vinci Code. Whoa! Yeah. And yeah. I wonder and how many of these folks actually were enjoying themselves. Well, it's an interesting question of like, like how they're like, you oh, I'm showing this. my devotion and it's torture, but yeah. like inside they were like, this feels pretty good. Yeah, it's like they that they viewed it, they viewed it through the, the this Christian worldview, and that bench eventually sort of like began to change. We shifted into these these more secular, materialistic view of the world, and it's around um, around 1500 that you had like what is, as far as I know, the first discussion of flagellation in a purely uh, in a purely um, physical way, which is... Um, you mean devoid a, of, like, not, religious, a, not in a religious context? Religious connotation. Not in a religious context. It was a, an astrologer and an author called um, Pico de la Mirandola, and he wrote this treatise talking about a man who required, um, who required flagellation to be sexually aroused. And he Whoa, sort that of seems this pretty, as, like, awesome for the time. Yeah. And he seems, and he described it as basically as a as a physiological difference, 
he didn't view it as religion. He viewed it in a completely uh, physiological context. And there were other, and this, but this debate was sort of going on, you know, but was really it well into a bad the, thing, or was it just a was it a, an objective description? I'd say it was an objective description. It's just like a a you know it was a physical you know here oh here's an interesting case. It was like an it was like a case study, a mm-hmm. a, a Renaissance case study. And, you know, this sort of argument, these arguments kept going for even after this went for centuries into, the, you know, even in the 18th and 19th centuries, people were still debating about the proper role of flagellation and whether it could be a part of religious practice, whether it should be used as a punishment, uh, whether it should be used on children, uh, whether it should be used. Um, so the, even then there were and there were voluntary flagellant cults. Uh, you know, extending, you know, well into the 18th century. And even as, you know, the, this idea of mortification of the flesh sort of fell out of favor in, in mainstream religion. So there's this gradual shift over and it sort of got squeezed out of religion and sort of turned up in, in sexuality. So by the 18th and 19th centuries, you know, uh, in France, in Paris or London, you'd have plenty of, of uh, brothels offering flagellation uh, services to their clients. So offering and, to both receive and provide? Yes. How do you think the, or what have you found that the mainstream culture, like how did they respond to this? Was it just sort of an accepted thing or was it like if you were caught doing that, um, it was a shameful thing? I think it became a bit, it became more shameful. I think people became, um, so I think that like in, in, uh, in Fanny Hill, for example, uh, which was published, I believe 1750 around then, um, it's just one of those, it's, it's one of those things. There's a scene where the protagonist goes to, is, uh, a, a mutual flagellation session and it's, uh, treated as sort of just an unusual sexual taste, a goutte bizarre as the French say. <laughs> and I think it's like only like in about in later in the 19th century where people got more concerned about this, uh, become, became, there was this more, there was a stricter definition of, of perversion of sexual perversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had early sexologists like, uh, craft Debbing. Right. Who and, said it was, uh, who was like craft Debbing? I like thought was bad. And then in reading some of your book, I was like, he is really bad. Did he do positive contribution? I don't know about Kraft Ebbing, if you could give us some context. He was like, there's four uh, types of sexuality. There's four types of like sexual dysfunctions, right? One is like, yes. you don't like sex, which is bad. One is you like sex when you're too young or you're too old. One is, oh, fuck, you like pain. Ugh, I didn't study enough. I didn't study enough, professor. What are you going to do? <laughs> just kidding. I, I'm going to avoid making student. any jokes about about disciplinary action, just because we don't have time for it. But um, yeah, but he was um, Kraft Ebbing. He coined the term uh, masochism. Uh, sadism, sadism had already been used, but he viewed um, sadism as uh, as sort of the the two perversions. Uh, one of which is you know excessive. And, uh, he coined, so he sort of put those two terms together in this sort of grand theory of sexuality, um, in which any, really anything that didn't lead to the possibility of, of conception, i.e. heterosexual coitus, was a perversion, which meant that rape wasn't necessarily a perversion because it could lead to conception. Whoa, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Now I, I should, um, And what does perversion mean? Like etymologically? Uh, um, that's, there's another thing. It's like not of, natural. It, it, yeah. And not natural. What's interesting is that it before, like before about the 19th century, perversion was something that would be attract, attached to, uh, religious deviance. Um, that people who were, you know, like what Protestants would think of Catholics and vice versa. Like a perversion so that, of the word of God. Yes. And that was all, that was frequently attached to, uh, sexual perversions, the idea that if you were religiously deviant, you were also sexually deviant. Mm. Um, so Kraft Ebbing was, you know, sort of formulated, made this sort of grand theory of sexuality, and he identified sadism and masochism as two of the possible perversions. 
Uh, fetishism was another, which is sexual arousal by a non-standard person or object. Mm-hmm. So, and that was, and you know, that was like it was. Now, when he wrote this book, uh, Psychopathia Sexualist, it was supposed to be a guide uh, for doctors and lawyers and judges uh, to sort of like help because they were there was all the surveillance of sexuality happening through police records and, and you know, the po- beginnings of psychiatry and things like that. I mean, not that what he was saying was positive or helpful. I mean, it's obviously very shame shaming, but it's sort of like there are a lot of past sexologists who I don't necessarily agree with, but they did act as somewhat of stepping stones or at least like talked about yes. sex and created yeah. like a study around it. So like for that, I think it's positive, but it obviously had an yeah. air of shame. Well, I, 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 I wouldn't judge. I, I ask you not to judge Kraft Ebbing too harshly because Fine, so, many, <laughs> uh, so many people, um, you know, Kraft Ebbing, I think he became much more sympathetic to the people he studied um, so many people would write into him saying, like, I thought I was unique. I thought I was the only person in the world mm. who, who had these feelings or thoughts and mm. that I was some kind of utterly defective human. And, you know, his, his book, which was immensely popular as for answering questions like this, uh, even among people who weren't, they weren't supposed to be reading it, uh, lay people, um, you know, in a it did in a in a way give them a degree of emotional support to know that there were other people like them. And I don't think he was as judgmental as about this as you might think. Hmm. There's this anecdote that um, he uh, one of his patients was was uh, fixated on women with limps, and at one point he just said to the man, "Find a woman who limps and make her happy. Don't you know what's the problem?" Right. So I think he was, I mean, yeah, he was part of this, this, you know, this pattern of, of defining and categorizing sexuality that you saw in this period. Um, but I don't think he was, I don't think he was in a, you know, some sort of evil puritanical overlord. Hmm. He was a, a, a much more, I think he was far more sympathetic and supportive. Just going that. back to the religious stuff, and maybe this is an obvious question, where does the whole flagellation and pain stuff come from? Is that because of like Jesus Christ on the cross and was whipped and like nailed? Like, is that where those types of punishments come whipped from? Or is it from some, some other scripture that you know of? Well, okay. So in a lot of religions around the world and not just, this is not distinct to Christianity In a lot of religions around the world, even and in the past and today, you'll see people who do physical ordeal rituals as part of their religious practice. Right. And I know you mentioned some great ones in the book from, um, you know, people who do big body adornments to like, circumcision, circumcision, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess we could see that as like a ritual around that, but like, as you're talking about more adult rituals, right? Yes. Yeah. So in the, in the native Americans, uh, plains people, you have, these uh, rituals where in people are like suspended from hooks and oh flesh. yeah suspension for yeah. sure yeah the um you know there's other uh, rituals in which uh, you know people are have you know hooks weights hooked into their bodies uh, people fast people spin people do all kinds of things to change their sensory their their sensorium to overload their sensory perceptions um, and put them in an altered state of consciousness. In Christianity, uh, specifically, that involves a lot of that got tied up with the, the passion of the Christ and the description of the passion where he was, you know, beaten, flogged, pierced, crown of thorns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I guess the difference and, I was seeing from what you were saying, Simone, about um, circumcision, whether that be um, male, female, or, you know, whatever circumcision. Um, well, is that these are more these are more ritualistic things that you're describing, Peter, to talk about um, altered states of being versus like cultural yes. things that we do. Well, but you brought yeah, up in the book too, like were the foot binders of China sadomasochists? Like, yeah. all, there's all these kinds of body modifications that we do that yeah. definitely cause significant sensory experience. Yeah, culture or kink. 
culture yeah. a kink. Exactly. Like what yeah, might and be and cultural for one thing is a kink for, like we're not in a culture yeah. maybe that celebrates suspension, but there are lots of people in the BDSM community who do needle suspension in their or skin. Or literally, even just hearing you talk about the Passion of the Christ, whipped and crown of thorns and all that stuff. You're like describing Simone's like dream scene. scene. Well, not my <laughs> dream scene, but I could see it happening at some of the weird parties Nicoletta invites me to. <laughs> yeah. We have seen and, it happen at the so parties. Many, yeah, and so many, and so this, this, you know, image, these images of Christ, you know, so, you know, re replicated over and over again in so many different formats and you were supposed to People would have these like little palm-sized um, relics that they would study and and meditate on. That was about that would show Christ being flogged or or symbolic representations of his wounds and things like this. And mm -hmm. the idea is, is that through emulation, through either through studying this image or actually experiencing flagellation or or other forms of physical ordeals, you would experience Christ. You would, so if you, know, you are a heavy bottom and you're listening to this, you are fucking Christ-like. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Some, and, and some people do that. Some people do invest a lot of spirituality in their kink. I mean, sure. I, hate um, to, I hate to ask why do people do kink because it sounds shaming of like, well, why do you like that? Like, because I like it. Well, but I this think is neurologically there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Right, and so I'm curious, like over time, if you feel like the goal for most people is to reach an altered state. Like, why has this been something over time that people are drawn mm. to? Like, how did we intertwine pain and pleasure? I don't think that's a shame question at all. I think it's just something, I think it's something humans do. It's, it's so many, if you look around at so many different cultures, there's something people do to get themselves into altered states of consciousness. And whether it's like uh, peyote or cannabis or fasting or meditating, mm -hmm. or uh, suspending by hooks, or self-flagellation, or um, or just self-discovery, uh, other self-discovery practices. Yeah, I would. I would. I'm. I restricted somewhat to the idea that of doing something physical to attain a a uh, altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like, like I said, overloading or underloading the sensory the sen your sensory perceptions is a way of, of achieving an altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that's, and it's something that's something people do. Um, I think that in, at least in the West, uh, you know, and that's a, obviously, admittedly a very broad term is that we've had this sort of idea that, you know, religion is supposed to be this very sort of sober minded affair of contemplation. And it's taken other people to sort of like seek out ways of, of of experiencing altered states of consciousness mm -hmm. um that whether it you know whether it's lsd or peyote or mm -hmm. you know ingesting various chemicals that make changes or whether it's doing physical things like flagellation or fasting or, or what have you that achieves this sort of altered state and um so you know i think kink is is has come about through part of that and so much of it is evolved not just physical um, there's the physical side of it, but there's also the mental side of it of various roles mm -hmm. of taking on the role of the slave or the the victim or the prisoner or the the outlaw or uh you know the cruel master or the loving master or things like that that also contribute to the altered state of consciousness and, and experiencing different emotions that you might not be able to experience otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And and that involve a lot of it involves taboos. A lot of it involves um, eroticizing anxiety, cultural anxieties. Uh, right. So the, shifting gears slightly, but not actually that much. It's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you about next. Is so when we're talking about where the word perversion came from, we talked about how we associated being deviant religiously into being deviant sexually, and then in the book you talk about this correlation that we have with deviant sexuality to deviant politics. And it's specifically mm -hmm. in your chapter called, I think it's Every Woman Wants a Fascist or something like that. Mm. Um, <laughs> what a great chapter title. Um, and, that, yeah, that came from a Sylvia Plath poem. Yeah. Oh. And um, you go into like a very major cultural taboo, um, which it's about, 
you talk about how you have these little vignettes from your life at the beginning of chapters and it's this party where everyone's dressed up in all these different costumes and one guy's kink is he's in a fucking Nazi costume. An SS uniform. Sorry? An SS uniform. SS uniform. Yeah. Yeah, which is an SS. I mean, that when most people say Nazi costume or Nazi uniform, that's what they think of is the full dress, SS dress uniform. Yeah. And yeah, that's like a major with- cultural taboo. Yeah. Yes. Which is eroticized in that in that sense. And so is there yes. <clears throat> I guess I guess A, I just want to talk about that for a sec. But the, the 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 actual question is this like link that we have of like deviant politics and deviant sexuality. Like, is there truth to that? Um I'd say I'm going to give a qualified sort of. I don't (laughs) think that, I mean, it's like, like I said, when I was talking earlier about, you know, Catholics attributed religious and sexual perversion to Protestants and vice versa. And it's the same thing where, where like we, we would, we, even back in the thirties, we would, you know, people were, uh, were writing about fascists, the early fascists, even before World War II, imputing, uh, sexual deviance to them. Like, you know, the fact that, uh, the SA was, was, um, was found, led by, uh, Ernst Rome, who was, a an out homosexual. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, in, that's, if you want to attack your political enemies, the surest way is to, is to attribute deviant sexuality mm. with, like, remember Pizzagate a few years ago? Yeah. That was yeah, crazy. For people yeah, who don't know, a, what is Pizzagate? That was this uh, conspiracy theory that was going around, people claiming that this this pizza restaurant in Washington D.C. was was where like the Democratic Party elite were running a pedophile ring and and things like that. And it's like they were somebody believed this enough that they would, you know, the idea is that they were using coded messages, and somebody believed this enough to go in there with a gun and. Thankfully, nobody got sh- got hurt. But um, I wonder if in the future, like fifty years from now, at kink parties, instead of people dressing up in SS uniforms, if they'll be dressing up as Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, at least the SS just were one, better just dressers. Just wondering. <laughs> I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah. because I think it it is this tough thing in the kink community because there you don't want to shame, but there are a lot of role plays or just interests that are based in these taboo things like I think it's kind of yes. it's almost like a it's almost like a place where we can explore these really yeah. taboo subjects that are of interest because we're humans and we're curious right. and some people are a no-go when it comes to things like race play and stuff like that but other yes. people lean into that I mean I think it comes yeah. up for um there's a lot of speakers who identify as women of color who are slaves or submissives and talking about yeah. like what happens when we use this word slave um, and how does that fit into a cultural context? Like, how do we, yeah. how do we eroticize yeah. these things that do have a history and horror? Yeah, and that's that is a very complicated question. And, and um, you know, there is so much like when we when we attribute deviant sexuality to uh, to say fascism, you know, we we it becomes you know the fascist becomes this blank screen where we project our fantasies are forbidden thoughts. So you get something like uh, the Ilsa movies, uh, the Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS with, with Diane Thorne. Oh, I'm not familiar and with those. Those They were this series of exploitation movies made in the late 70s. Um, and uh, they were, the first one was uh, uh, like almost probably the best known Nazi exploitation movie. And it starred her as this, this, uh, female camp commandant, uh, who, you know, uh, ran, you know, the SS torture camp and, you know, what did horrible experiments on women and would like, you know, sleep with the male prisoners. And if they, if they failed to satisfy her, she'd castrate them the next day and all this kind of, um, this kind of stuff. And they, and they were, so we were fantasy, we were projecting all these fantasies of, of female dominance and, uh, female perversion onto this mythological figure. And the, and you see, like, there were, there were three other movies also starring, starring Diane Thorne, 
the second one was about uh, petropolitics, oil, you know, Middle Eastern oil states run by sheiks and mm. harems. And then they, it was on one in a Latin American dictatorship. Um, and then there was one uh, set in the Soviet Gulag. So all of Whoa. these starred Diane Thorne um, as this, this, you know, evil dominatrix woman, even though the politics that they were uh, presenting were completely different. Um, so, but somehow this, this, you know, there's this recurring image of this monstrous, sexually deviant, sexually aggressive woman as, you know, who would somehow crop up at, whether in any form of deviant mm -hmm. politics, even mm -hmm. if they had nothing to do with each other. So it's like, and this became, you know, the fantasies of, of the monstrous woman, the, the cruel woman, um, and the same thing, you know, you can see the same thing. How is the monstrous ones. woman, uh, and that's like in, in like a like a dominatrix? Yes. Today? Um, yeah. I, I think what's so interesting is how you're able to trace these these uh, historical sociocultural lineages from, uh, from fucked up shit to fucked up shit, kind of. Yeah. Um, in, in a really cool way that's both educational and kind of slightly titillating. And <laughs> um, I'm just curious as to what you are hoping to achieve with this book. And I, I want to read something that you say in the introduction, which I found to be really powerful and, and, and quite beautiful. And I just want to talk about it for a second, where you say, the history of alternative sexuality is full of holes left by records lost or destroyed by their owners out of shame or by others trying to suppress their ideas and images. For every person in the past who left evidence of their sexual interests and activities, there are untold numbers who didn't. And I really feel in the context of your work and in the context of our podcast, in terms of shining a light on people like this stuff and people do this and stuff. And they have since like the dawn of time. They have since the dawn of time. And so not only is there a cultural legitimacy to it, but I think even... Um, making it academically legitimate is really powerful and 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 very yeah, just really awesome. How were you able to find some of this research? Because it, if um, there are so many things that have been hidden, like it just sounds like such an undertaking. Some of it's just uh, I mean, like I'm I have no idea how I would have done this before the age of Google. Uh, that certainly helps. So I could do scholarly searches and things and and things like that. Um, another, some of it's like uh, just like following threads and and uh, looking up different, you know, into all kinds of weird little cul-de-sacs and things. Like it's like so much of it's some of it's the the stuff that did survive is kind of just like like chance. Like a big part of my one of the major figures we I write about is. Um, uh, Hannah Colwick and Arthur Munby, who had this, this secret master slave relationship, uh, in the 19th century. And when they, and like only a very few people knew about this when they were alive. Who were these, who were these people? They're just like two they people were, in the 19th century that uh, were master slaves. Yeah. And they had, yeah, consensual master slaves. And they both kept diaries and, uh, while they were alive, almost nobody knew about this. Only like two or three people knew that they were doing this. And um, But they left an awesome uh, legacy. Yeah, but you see, Munby, who was uh, um, uh, seriously considered destroying the jur their journals. He, he seriously, at the end of his life, he seriously considered destroying of all this. And uh, fortunately for me, at least, uh, he changed his mind and he left all of this, all of these journals that he wrote and she wrote, uh, in a box in, uh, Trinity College in, in, I believe it, is it Ox Oxford? Yeah. Trinity, yeah, Trinity is in Dublin? I think it's in Ireland. Ireland. There might be a Trinity College oh, in Oxford maybe. too. I believe so, yeah. And they, he left, uh, he died in 1910 and he left orders that these were not to be opened until I believe the early 50s. Were those, so were those it, was that respected? Though they were respected. Nobody knew about this until wow. somebody opened up the, opened that box. Oh, I love it. And, I love it. Isn't that fascinating? Found, because part of yeah. me is like, the more I learn about the King community and like all of these 
rules and regulations and protocols and the way that people do things. And I think of, well, okay, so do people find out that somebody does something and then realize that they want to do it too? And is that what makes them kinky? But it seems that there's something more innate, something deeper within some Yeah, like if there weren't guidelines and books that you could read back then on how to do a master-slave protocol, like how did they figure it out? Or they just felt like it felt natural. Yeah. They just kind of, they just kind of worked it out on their own. And, um, they 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 worked uh, so that like those those their papers didn't <clears throat> weren't part of the scholarly record until the 1950s, um, and you know and people and it's uh, kind of just sheer chance that we we knew about this that this that these people were not lost to uh, history and I feel like but I mean if you compare that to like the the Magnus Hirschfeld's uh, archives, which were destroyed by the Nazis mm-hmm. in the 30s. Yeah, and know. this you know massive amount of of information about uh, the 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 homosexual and lesbian and and queer cultures of of pre uh, war Germany, mm-hmm. you know so much of that is lost. It just never, um, you know, we may never you know get that uh, recover even a fraction of of what was destroyed in that process. Well, I'm so, so I'm. I'm so glad that we got a little bit of an insight into your book. And as we have to wrap up, I want people to be able to find it so they can enjoy the rest of it because not everyone can be so lucky to get a copy, which we are super grateful for. Um, but how can people find it and and buy it? Because we want everyone to be able to know this more and we appreciate the the titillating mm-hmm. preview. <laughs> Professor. Um well, I, I wrote this. Uh, uh, um, it's on Amazon if for both hardcover and Kindle. Um, it's it's uh, mostly going to be going into university bookstores. It's called A Lover's uh, so Pinch. You, yes, it's called A Lover's Pinch, A uh, his, a Cultural History of Sadomasochism by Peter Tupper. Uh, it's on Amazon, uh, hardcover and in uh, Kindle form. Uh, it's mostly going to be in um in university bookstores, but you might be able, I know you can get it through uh, Barnes and Noble as well. So, you know, do a search. There's also my blog, uh, history of BDSM.com, huh. uh, which is going to have direct links, uh, there. So you can, it, you can get it that way. Um, I'm hoping that, um, you know, that both people who are interested in kink, but also people who are interested in history and, and, uh, the history of sexuality can, can look at this and find it interesting. And, uh, I hope that uh, that this can give people, not just kinky people, but everybody a better understanding of what kink is and where it comes from and, and how it turned out the way it is. Well, I think you do that very well in your book, and we're so grateful that you took the time to chat with us. As always, if you want to stay up to date on what we're doing over here on the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, or you can email us like Peter did at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Thank you.